What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Apartment 113 podcast, where we talk with cool folks in the cannabis and psychedelics industry to learn about their projects and celebrate their successes. My name is Rob Sanchez. This is episode 12, and we're joined today by the founder of Forte Operations and the Grown Group, Brittany Melville. Forte creates custom SOPs and business processes required for licensing and running efficient operations. Find out more at forteops.com. That's F-O-R-T-E-O-P-S.com. Enjoy the show. Brittany, how are you doing today? Thank you for coming on the show. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a conversation overdue, the importance of SOPs in the cannabis industry. And you came uh, highly recommended by our first guest, uh, Munir Ak, over at Cure 8. Um, yeah, definitely not the most uh, exciting thing to talk about in terms of cannabis SOPs, but I already say, I always say operations are the backbone of retail organizations, so they are super important. Right, like without some of the like, administrative details or the process and, and standards there, we wouldn't have the industry that we all know today, or we wouldn't have any consistency in, in brands and in our products. Yeah, definitely. And especially in such a highly regulated environment, such as the cannabis industry, it's extremely important, I think, to operationally standardize everything um, just because of the nature of the environment we're in. Yeah. And, and you're based in Canada. And if I recall, you had some experiences in the, the early days of Canadian federalization. So you saw maybe on a, a firsthand account of how much these SOPs are needed. Yeah, actually, going back to Manier, your first podcast um, attendee, he opened the first store on legalization 1017 uh, with me in Winnipeg, Manitoba. We call it Winterpeg, Manitoba. At that point in time, none of us really knew any type of standardization or we actually didn't have SOPs at that point. In Canada, they aren't part of your application requirements. So essentially, you could open a store and, and run fairly rogue. Um, all you have to really submit is your fee for your application, have your taxes up to date, and add criminal background check, essentially. So a lot of the states, as you know, require SOPs state to state. Um, so in Canada, we were kind of just running rogue and, and did whatever we thought was best. Uh, but it, it was such an amazing time. I met so many phenomenal people um, along the way and um, now working alongside Meniere here a couple years later. Definitely a formative time for the industry and for the professionals that were involved in that kind of mad rush for... Uh... Oh, cannabis day there north of the border. Do, re do de retail shops in Canada have to submit or also go through a video process, like walkthrough of their facility, or is that only on the cultivation side? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the retail dispensaries during COVID had to do a video walkthrough, your pre-off inspection. However, um, post-COVID, it's still in-person inspection uh, from your compliance officer. And if it's, I see. Yeah, if it's your first store opening um, in Ontario, for uh, example, you do have to do like a quick training and then an inspection. However, if you're opening your next location, you just have to do your final inspection and you can open your doors. I've been on site at a few cultivation facilities as they prepared for their video inspection. And it is the, uh, one of the most tensest weeks, you know, in the application <laughs> process, like trying to clean all, all the rooms, tidy everything, finish out your process, even understanding how the tour is going to flow. It sounds like, um, quite a process to line things up and, and, and hit that out of the park still. I've had, it also it depends on the inspector also. I've had compliance officers that have come in for an inspection that has last five minutes and I'd, ha I'd have others that would last an hour and a half. It, it just really depends on the day and their mood. To be depends on what's going on for them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if they want to, they could make it a, a painful, thorough process. Definitely. Which is great for cannabis. Obviously, we need that thoroughness and consistency, but nothing... You know, we don't need anything more already because of how much red tape all these businesses are having to kind of cross and cut through to get their businesses operational. If you look at the U.S., is it more complex than Canada or just a different complexity for getting those licenses, licenses started up and SOPs prepared? That's a great question. I would, I would say it's fairly similar. However, what I've personally found is is the complexities are within um, the state-to-state -state differences and sometimes even jurisdiction-to-jurisdiction -jurisdiction within the state, coupled with the fact that some states you have medical and adult use, which operate completely differently from um, one or the other. Uh, right. So just having the variables of the state laws uh, throws, a, throws a wrench in things versus the nice blanket uh, legality in Canada, I think. Yeah, definitely. Is there a state that's particularly difficult or one that's still being worked out? Maybe maybe two that you could that you would call out? I would say New York right now. Everything's ever changing. I swear every day there's new news and, and updates and movement with New York and uh it's it is a challenging state. Obviously it's it's going to be a massive state, super exciting for tourism alone. Um and hopefully these stores can get opening open over the next couple weeks, months, um, because the card license holders, which are the social equity applicants, are just waiting and, and ready to go. And, and we're hoping that they could open also. Yeah, it sounds like they only have maybe three licenses or four that have passed and then everyone else is just in the in the wings lined up. Are they paying rent on their facilities already while they wait? Yeah, I think there's now, I want to say five stores that have opened, which still, it should be way more than that. And um, I imagine that the people that have signed leases and their builds are, are ready to go are probably paying their lease. Um, the issue also was the fund that was tied up from the state. Um, there wasn't any funds really for these social equity applicants. So that was, that was another part of the issue with the rollout and um, slowed down process of these stores opening. Yeah, definitely slow down. I mean, it sounds like it's given the, the gray market, uh, for better or worse, like some serious traction in the state. There are kind of varying levels of that across the U.S. as well, but I didn't 
expect New York to be on the map, but it sounds like they have like bodegas and trucks and community events and all kinds of things going on um, within the state to just uh, go ahead and progress as, as a society without waiting on the litigation. <laughs> Certainly. You could walk into like a gift shop or a 7-Eleven or any bodega and, and honestly get cannabis there. So it's pretty accessible, which um, does make it a little bit challenging for, for the new adult use stores that are opening. Yeah, to have to compete there or differentiate themselves. I think as the licenses roll out, hopefully that balance will be made um, a little more readily, but it's definitely in a weird stage on the, the New York side. Certainly. Coupled with the fact that the price of cannabis I've been hearing from a couple license holders is, is pretty high. Um, apparently the farmers are have priced um, the cannabis at a fairly high price in hopes to get some of their initial investments back right away, which we all know this this game is the long, long if you need to be in it for the long haul. So hopefully we can see those prices decrease a little bit so we can start combating the illicit market. Right. It, offering taxed high price products is not a great way to competitively leverage against the gray or illicit side of things. Exactly. Yeah, that's and um, you know easier said than done. Obviously, if you've put all the time into these facilities, you've done your licensing and you're ready to go. It's tempting to to put the true cost per gram on these products, which maybe people aren't ready to pay if you uh, add it all up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I could go on for hours picking apart um, the issues that are wrong with this state. But what what's really unfortunate is um, the state temporarily permitted a. It was in December, I think, um, for these licensees to open up temporary delivery warehouses. However, a lot of these landlords won't send, won't sign a lease for 12 months. Um, and if they are offering to, to uh, sign a lease for 12 months, they're, they're wanting like double the rent that these people are going to have to pay, uh, coupled with the fact that you still need your to staff, security, cameras, everything. So it just, the business model doesn't really make sense. Yes, people want to start... Um, getting money, uh, but it, it just honestly financially is, is really challenging. Right. I, everything has to be at, a, at the right time or in the right order as well as just getting money or just having the initiative or the ambition to get it done. Exactly. And where did you, or what position did you start at there at the, at the Winter Peg location? Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it was a funny story. I was living abroad in Indonesia where there was the death penalty for cannabis trafficking. So honestly, I, I was not consuming any cannabis at the time, except when I was right. in national waters. <laughs> um, and uh, cannabis was legalizing in Canada. So I ended up coming back and working with a company named Tokyo Smoke, which in Toronto, Ontario, they were pretty well known in the cannabis community prior to legalization because we had a couple cafes here, like just coffee cafes, that were set up essentially just to be community hubs around cannabis. And we sold, um, there was like pipes here, you had different like elevated meditation classes, and there was a coffee membership that they would charge customers $30 a month and you'd get unlimited coffee. So essentially mm. the businesses were not set up to really turn a profit, but instead to really encourage conversation and build community surrounding cannabis. So I started early days off with that company um, who got to open the first store in Canada in Winnipeg. Our, our retail licensing was a little bit more uh, 
just, I guess, ahead of the game in, in that province. So literally on the day of legalization, we were able to open up, I think, three stores at the time we did. Um, and then I was asked to move to Toronto uh, to open up stores in Ontario, which is our log- largest market. We do about 40% of the sales for the entire country in Ontario. Okay, wow. So getting those first three going was just the tip of the iceberg after that and kind of the catalyst for everything else. Is that how... F- did Forte evolve on that second round of store implementations, or was that even later in the in the timeline? So uh, Tokyo Smoke was acquired by Canopy Growth, which I'm, I'm sure you're pretty familiar with. And uh, during that time, the licensing model was a little bit different for Ontario. Um, so we had some franchise stores. There were some corporate stores. We had a lottery system. So some of the stores were from the first and second round lottery winners. Um, and just during this corporate transition, I realized where uh, my skill set really flourished was within more small scale independent stores. I, I loved working with the mom and pop shop. Um, customer focused and staff focused small scale retail is, is what I really enjoy doing. I've, I've been in retail for about 16, 17 years of my life. So what I did was I, I had an amazing experience with Tokyo Smoke. I met so many phenomenal people. I had a chance to sit as a co-chair on the Ontario Cannabis Store Retail Advisory Panel. Um, but it, it prompted me and propelled me to really start my own cannabis consulting agency up in Canada called The Grown Group, where we essentially white label ourselves as retailers head offices um, by doing ops marketing and buying for them. So our entire mission was to really provide these smaller scale, more independent stores with the same discounts, resources, information, and experience as we knew these big box retailers were receiving so that we could kind of, you know, level up the playing field a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I can get behind that. I know that a lot of the mom and pop shops um, put their their heart and soul into everything that they're doing. And there's a much different feel at times with that product and with the service you're getting than the, the MSO, the big box shops and nothing against the corporate cannabis because we need, I think, things on both levels. But I've, after implementing software for corporate cannabis versus smaller mom and pop shops, it's it's easier and friendlier. There's so many reasons why I prefer that the smaller scale, but I definitely value that um, that large that large stuff. I think that the the real question is how can the um, how can the larger companies start to create that same feeling without being smaller, which is probably the million dollar question right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, another huge issue for the smaller scale independent retailers is they're they're not able to afford to drop their margins down to the competitive prices that these large MSOs have. So we would have to get creative with how to um, bring in additional revenue through different programs or buybacks or incentives. And, you know, so it's that's kind of what our group did in Canada. Uh, but most recently, about a year and a half ago, I, I did recognize that a lot of the states were going to require SOPs. And because we, I've been building these in Canada for the last couple of years, I, I said, this. I know this is going to be a massive um, need and, and requirement in the U.S. I don't have a, a dev background, so hence why I reached out to the Curate CEO, Eric, who we have a longstanding amazing partnership with. And um, that's, that's where Forte SOPs came. So essentially, we write um, custom and, and we customize SOPs for every single state. So not only processes that help you get approved within your license, but actual tools and resources that you could pass off to your store manager so that they can open and scale and, and operate in, in a competitive landscape 
um, and, you know, really run and, and scale their business. Right. And have that chance out in the, in the competitive market, right. With this, with the backbone of the SOPs and for folks that are listening that maybe don't know what SOPs are, uh, standard operating procedures are used in all manners of business, you know, from manufacturing to retail. And they, they really detail what is supposed to be done in the ideal providing of a service or in the ideal workflow, what, how should everything happen? Um, could you expand on that a little bit for folks that maybe are are new to the SOP term? Definitely. Um, I know I have to I have to catch myself explaining the acronym a little <laughs> bit because it's just something that's been ingrained in me my entire professional career. So an SOP, a standard operating procedure, is essentially a detailed step by step process on literally how to do absolutely ever, anything from a cannabis delivery to compliantly destroying something to IDing a guest to making sure that you are not serving somebody who's intoxicated. So just the high level layout of an SOP would explain the objective um, and then it would explain the step-by-step detailed how-to process, not just regurgitating the regulations, but also adding in the actual steps of a, a manager or a bud tender has to follow. And then we also tie in any like resources from the government website or additional training references and, and then who is responsible for this specific process uh, with Forte. We have a sign-off functionality on our platform so that depending on your position, whether you be a bud tender or a store manager, you're given your SOPs as soon as you're onboarded onto the platform and you're required to read, acknowledge, and sign all the SOPs that pertain to your specific position. So then as an owner-operator, I have evidence that I've trained um, Rob here on how to destroy cannabis and he knows the difference of destruction for flour versus destruction for edibles and he dates signs it and it's stored within the HR vault um, on the platform right so really it's the it's like the rule book for the business the SOPs laying out yeah. those guidelines and and it sounds like the customization then is not only then have I been trained on the proper destruction but train in that facility, you know, it's, it's, it's indoor too, where we store this. And when we throw our trash out, it goes here versus anywhere else. Right. Exactly. That's the, well, the facility variable comes in and shakes up those SOPs in every business. Certainly. I'll, I'll give another example. We had a recent client that we onboarded, um, that had been operational for about a year and they didn't have an inventory process. They were just kind of ad hocing inventory. So what we did in we did was we went and did a audit of their entire like weekly and monthly inventory process. Basically gutted it and made a suggestion on how we think uh, inventory should be done and weekly and monthly moving forward from who should be involved, what scanners you should use, how often, what time, how many people, how you do the inventory adjustments within the point of sale, how you do the reporting afterwards. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's an example of something that we won't just give you a template on how to figure it out yourself. We'll work with you to customize it based on best practices that we've really observed over the last years. Right. And really uh, fleshing out all of those, those gaps. I think that it's easy for a business owner to say, oh, well, we, you know, we would check in the guest and then we would take their order. And between those two steps, there's a whole list of things that needs to be kind of confirmed and agreed upon. Where's the guest waiting? How do you check them in? What information is being taken? All of that really adds up. 
And yeah. I can imagine creates just a knowledge base of documentation. Forte has a system then to view these SOPs or to, to look them up? Correct. Um, we have them stored on a branded Microsoft SharePoint website that we build for the client. And it essentially awesome. acts as an HR vault and intranet that houses all of these SOPs, all of your tools, um, and are accessible to literally every single employee will have a login, but a bud tender wouldn't have access to the same tools as a store manager. So for example, like a PL report, a, a store manager would have that, but like a bud tender wouldn't need to see something like this. And the the point and objective of of really implementing a standard like this right from the get-go is so that when you're scaling your business and, and bringing on more people, it, it's so much easier to do that when you have this level of standardization because your businesses will all operate the same. You can walk into one back of house and it'll be operating this as the same dispensary that you have maybe in another state because you have these processes and procedures put into place right from the get-go. Right, which I'm sure then just only scales further as you start to add data to those SOPs and figure out, you know, cost optimization, COGS, you know, your WIP inventory, like what's, what is the business really? And oftentimes the SOPs could be almost um, like changing points where, you know, if we change the SOP, we may actually change this data or the, the way that this service is being done. Um, how do SOPs relate there to the manufacturing side? with COGS and like bill of materials and or reducing costs for cannabis? Right. So we actually don't have manufacturing SOPs at this moment. We are supposed to be probably finished them by the end of the year. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of, I don't know if this is answering your question or just trailing off on another thought, but, <laughs> <All good. laughs> but um, SOPs specific for specifically for retail in terms of of cost we can we allow different levels of like so an admin level um in our sharepoint can edit any sop and um like a pnl report like i mentioned or uh anything to do with inventory costs like you you can change that entire process um within your sops yourself we could always revert you back to whatever original um, template that we installed uh, when we first onboarded you. However, we give that autonomy to the client so that they can update their processes however they feel. And for example, in the state of New York, uh, it, it's mandated that you, you have ongoing training. So if you as an operator change a certain process within your organization, it's, it's mandatory that you then train all of your staff on it too. Oh, okay. So then having that SOP knowledge base, you can kind of know more when the training needs to happen and what it needs to cover than a little more than just sharing the knowledge across the company. Or in my first cannabis operation, I've told the story on the cast already. We had a whiteboard basically that was mm -hmm. telling you how to do everything. And if it got erased, we, re we mm -hmm. tried our best to rewrite it. People would take pictures every once in a while, the store, that was our like version history. Uh, so it's, it's good to see a little bit more of a traditional um, administration, traditional SOPs and HR approach kind of merging with the cannabis industry. As much as cannabis tried to run parallel on its own, there's some of those things that are just, they cross all industry lines. They're essential. Certainly. I come from a retail background where my, my very first retail job was with a, a pretty large fashion company in North America. And there was processes for everything 
up to gum chewing in the store. So I, I come from a, a, a really heavily organized and, and detailed um, level of, you know, operational excellence within my retail background. So um, I thought it's only natural and normal that this would kind of transfer into a highly regulated environment. Yeah, and it's it's been a little bit of a slow wake up at times when mm. folks are just running the business with that knowledge that they have internally or just assuming everyone understands and, um, and giving it a try. I mean, part of it's maybe attributed to they just had to jump so early into business. They maybe didn't have time for the planning. But I've really seen a lack of um, that tradition or respect for like a traditional industries like like on the supply chain side or in in the accounting realm as well. Some businesses can really get a lot of momentum before they have a very serious accounting structure or way to track their finances. Can, can the SOPs be added um, mid-operation? Like if I already have retail shops but don't have any SOPs defined per se, is that where Forte could come and help me get back on the path? Yep, definitely. Um, some of the states, the SOPs that are required for your application don't cover all of the SOPs you actually need. Like uh, they won't tell you how to do your exact hiring process or if and when you have to terminate somebody or how to track all that information or how to optimize your Google business listing because we're in a regulated environment where cannabis isn't allowed to be advertised. So how do you navigate around that? So a lot of those aren't required in your application, um, but in my opinion, should be required within your business in order to remain competitive and uh, to really, you know, have a fair go at this industry. So yeah, definitely, we could we can certainly jump in and help refine refine current processes and, and build new ones to an existing store that's already operating. Right, and, and really helping them to to hopefully onboard faster. I know that sometimes on the retail fronts, it can be a little bit of a revolving door as well as, you know, folks either enter the industry in the, in the, in the retail side and then find something else they'd like to do and, and move onwards or, you know, get, get other roles. I think the bud tender position and a lot of the service folks working in retail um, can churn. And I think having a solid guideline hopefully prevents some of that churn, but on the other side, maybe makes it easier to bring people in and be confident that they're ready to go. <laughs> Definitely. Retail turnover is, is traditionally pretty high, but to your point, I think having a really good compensation structure, motivated like mm. team members, clear expectations of their job, their dis their job description, their roles and responsibilities, um, really clear processes put in place, uh, a clear pipeline of, of what jobs they could do beyond what they're hired to do is, is it's super motivational for a person um, when they're starting a new position and all those tools really help for retention in, in my experience with retail. So yeah, yeah, definitely. And another thing that's uh, what we really help with is, is because we're not federal, federally legalized, the regs seem to change quite often. Uh, camera retention is one of those, or mm. actually another example, we had a client that we onboarded um, and the smoke law, like the local smoke law changed so that anybody under 21 in a medical store could previously come in and buy papers and lighters. But then in February this last year, it changed. So we had to update certain processes and we pushed those updates to their SOPs so that they're in turn um, ensuring their teams are trained and they're remaining compliant. Oh, okay. So almost some checks and balances on the legal side. Not necessarily legal counsel, but you guys are staying aware of the laws or of the, the rules and regulations as they change. Exactly. 
And that's another thing that's easier to say than do that with all of the different states and different organizations that could push out changes, both on the state level or, as you mentioned, the jurisdiction level or city or, uh, you know, different counties, even in the U.S., may have different tax structures. It's a, it's a, a, a red tape filled industry to, to enter, um, even with the business and the funding and the location all planned. So it's good to it's good to know that there are Sherpas to guide you <laughs> through that red tape, right? And <laughs> try to take you up the mountain. Marketing regulations are another really challenging area to interpret. It's it's honestly next to impossible sometimes. Inducements will change. Cannabis gifting will change. It's it's never mind um, social media community guidelines on, on Instagram or TikTok or to Google ads, anything. So it's an ever-changing, ever-evolving industry that we're in. And um, as an owner-operator, it is is really important to kind of set yourself up set yourself up for success right from the get-go and and have these processes implemented as soon as you open your doors. Yeah, and just um, don't waste any time without them, right? Build the foundation correctly. <laughs> you don't want to dig out from the bottom of your house to put the basement in. Exactly, because putting this on a store manager who has to learn the ins and outs of, of their store and their operations, probably also a really busy store right when you open. It, it's extremely challenging to have them also build all these SOPs at the same time. To give you some context, it's been like four years in the making for our team and we're still still building more. There's always like another process, maybe that's not fleshed out enough or another avenue. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I, um, I came or I learned about um, SOPs from a manufacturing background where I learned more about um, building the recipes of things that you would make and planning the actions for that, the cost and like the, the machine centers, you know, knowing that you have a pound of flour that you need to mill and you can only reserve that miller eight hours a day. How long does each pound take and trying to avoid bottlenecks and that kind of naturally evolved to looking at more of the business and trying to optimize as the margins are so narrow for many of these licenses that almost any optimization you can wring out of a process or, or find in the business starts to become like, you know, money, especially with compound interest over the months and years that these businesses are trying to stay afloat. So I can, um, I totally respect that level of optimization and knowing about a few quality brands here at Vegas and in other markets, I think, they wouldn't have that brand or be able to have that consistency without some of these things like um, the measured guidelines or specific ways to get it done. I, mean, I think if I buy that product again and it's not good anymore, that changes the, that perception. So uh, almost the, the branding is as important as the SOPs behind it to actually make it happen. Otherwise you're just claiming something and not really getting it done. Right, which never mind branding. There's certain fonts and pantones that aren't permitted to be used. Sometimes oh, wow. if the font has like certain curvatures, or if it's a certain hue that's too enticing to children or whatnot. But uh, yeah, it's um, it, it's a it's a lot of learning and a lot of upkeep. But it's it's super interesting. Have you always really liked uh, guidelines and rules and um, like the fine print of things? in life or did you kind of discover this as you got into work and into the professional side of your career? Good question. Um, I'm a boundary pusher and <laughs> run off the beaten path in my personal life. I 
didn't follow my parents' original dream of becoming a lawyer. I instead moved to Bali and just, you know, made it work with no plan. Um, but in retail, just because of my background, uh, rules, routine, and processes uh, were the name of the game from the get-go. And, and during the recession, 2008, 2009, the company I was working for, instead of closing doors, uh, expanded brick and mortar and just grabbed up all those center court big, big, big retail spaces in uh, like metropolitan cities. We launched e-commerce and I, I think I really learned how to scale a business during that time. And I, I honestly think I learned more in that experience in retail than I did at university. So uh, yeah, a, a lot of my operational background comes from my original job. And, you know, I kind of just transfer that into the cannabis industry. I My mission is to really help more independent people that are independent retailers that are, are here because they love the plant, they love this industry, they love retail, they love the customers. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the mission behind Forte Operations is to really give my expertise and experience to these people so that they're set up for success right from the beginning. Right. Without having to put in the decade plus experience in the corporate retail environment. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's really cool story to hear that they were able to push so hard during a time of recession. I've seen a lot of um, encouragement that during a time like that, like COVID or recession or downtime is actually the time to push the hardest when, ev- when you see that everyone else is having to pull back or having to dial things down. There's a lot of nuances to that statement, of course, but I, I think I could see the value in, um, in driving forward while everyone is hesitating on the direction. And, I'm, you know, you mentioned you were a boundary pusher, and I feel to, to do that, you have to have a pretty good feel for the rules, especially with a potential lawyer background there. I imagine that uh, some of that plays into it as well. I, um, I like to learn a lot of the rules and processes behind the technology languages I work with, and I kind of attribute it to reading a lot of rule books as a kid. Like for games, I just wanted to know how the game worked, really. And when it came to playing it, it was like, eh, I'm interested in that too, but did you see on page 36 that <laughs> this rule actually conflicts? <laughs> I was that kid. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel as though because this industry is filled with so many different regulations and, and <laughs> regimented routines and that we need to follow and, and different regs from state to state or province to province and federally to provincially it's it is extremely challenging to be successful especially in a highly competitive environment so creatively navigating around the regulations was something that I made my mission to do for example I I knew there was a little bit of a loophole in Ontario where we could technically have consumption in the dispensaries and and this I sort of discovered a couple years ago and as long as you weren't combusted as long as there wasn't combustion like smoking there was no regs mentioning that you couldn't have like a beverage or an edible in the store so we actually the first store that had like an edible um bar and we had s'mores that we made and then we had cannabis mocktails made in there so that we had customers hanging out and consuming within the store obviously to make sure they weren't getting into a vehicle and, and driving away but as long as yeah smoking in the store it was totally 100 percent compliant that's a great example of you know read the fine print <laughs> read those read those regulations and make sure you thoroughly understand them <laughs> yeah, the con- and, 
I think I realized that the regulators, the inspectors, they're not here to slap you with a fine and, and make you close your doors. They want these businesses to be successful. So the regulators are your friends. You just need to work. You have to build a good relationship with them and, and work to find a solution that's, that's safe and compliant um, for everybody. Right. It's not a, uh, it's not an us or them. It's kind of an, it's a necessary evil from an operator perspective, but honestly, it doesn't have to feel that way if the relationship is good and you want your own business to thrive. So meeting the restrictions or regulations is kind of something that should fall in place. Um, On the consumption lounge front, have you seen very much of a push in the US? I know that our consumption lounge progress is very like hit or miss. You know, there's a little bit in California, a law passed in Michigan, but there's not really lounges. Um, There's a few more popping up. I think one in New Mexico, some plans in New Jersey, but it's all really early on the consumption side. Yeah, really early on the consumption side, and and we haven't um, fine-tuned and released any SOPs yet just because of the ups and downs of of that section of the industry. And, And personally, it's I've seen it extremely challenging um, to be a profitable business model just because of, I'll give an example, when somebody buys a cannabis beverage, if it's 10 milligrams or more, one beverage, chances are they're not going to buy five or six of those because a lot of people, one cannabis beverage, which won't cost you too much, is going to get you pretty rocked and you're not going <laughs> to yeah. sit there and, and keep purchasing more. So unless the regs permit for food to also be served within the same um, vicinity, it it is a really challenging business model to be profitable. Hmm. That's a good point. Almost like the consumption lounge needs to just be an additional feature to an already established business. Like, Like if you already have the restaurant and now people can consume in one room, it just adds a dynamic and attracts a different crowd versus opening up specifically to provide a dive bar for people to come and consume. I think I can see that for sure on the, I mean, on the edible side, I would chance two or three of those 10 milligram drinks, but I'm going to get real tired (laughs) in a few hours. (laughs) There's no way around it. (laughs) Yeah. And like an average spend for a customer coming in being $20, but sitting there for an hour and a half is, is, is really challenging. So to your point, maybe having a consumption lounge attached to a dispensary so somebody could purchase their cannabis and then go outside in the dispensary and consume it and maybe also buy a snack would make sense. Yeah, uh, to hang out a little bit or yeah, yeah, dry I, out the effects. Exactly. I've, I've seen brands um, also kind of creatively bring in additional revenue by having other cannabis brands buy out or lease out the space for X amount of time so that mm. when customers are coming in to consume, they're also trying their product and they're getting feedback and it's branded to that cannabis brand's own branding. So, I mean, there are ways to make it successful. It just, um, it seems really early days to kind of fine tune that, that model out in terms of just solely a standalone cannabis lounge. Right. That makes sense. I mean, Hey, I'd go to a cannabis lounge with like a bowling alley or like an arcade or something that was part of it as well. That'd be cool. Or like another activity you could do even something that you wouldn't like normally do all the time. I mean, if you're just hanging out smoking and they've got mini golf, like, hey, let's play around. I mean, it's. I think it it could be an evolution for some businesses to differentiate, but I I think I'm on the same page now with the timing. It's it's real it's real shaky right now, <laughs> and the the lounge law in Michigan, for example, I think is 
that dispensaries can open a consumption lounge, but they can't actually sell any cannabis products in said lounge. So there's almost no financial reason to to have that at all, at all <laughs> unless you have some um, you know genius marketing plan or a brand partnership or something else that's going to drive anything. You're basically just giving people some picnic tables outside the outside the restaurant where they could eat, but you can't sell them any more food there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 challenging. I, I really would love to see cannabis lounges pop up more. Um, so here's yeah, especially as a traveler, you know, you're because you you're you've been on the road a lot with Forte, going to different conferences and things. It would be a little different if there was a place in the cities that you could go to consume or go to meet like-minded folks versus like kind of making it work, which is how the industry does it and how we've always done it. But yeah, there's still something to, uh, on the tourist front, really understanding that consumption lounges could be uh, very useful or safe spaces for consumption, whatever they become. Definitely. Definitely. Here in Vegas, there's one that's gotten started. That's um, much more of a nightclub kind of approach in that you have to reserve your table and you have to buy, you know, on site from them. You rent your pieces, and it's it's a more of a high dollar experience, I think, than maybe what consumption lounges need. Mm. It still is probably a good time for businesses and folks traveling to Vegas and uh, needing to blow off a little steam and money. Uh, but uh, like for the regular consumer, that like coffee shop experience is definitely not what's being shaped down here yet. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that happens and. Even how Canada might push the push the envelope on that too. I didn't know that there were already kind of clubs and lounges um, in the northern provinces there. Yeah, there's there's one company that's getting away with it. It's it's kind of a loophole. They have a research license at the back of one of their dispensaries. So uh, what an an additional stream of revenue they have are there's brands cannabis brands on the market that are going to be releasing product that they want tested. So they pay to have their product at this research lounge and then customers come in, they pay depending on if you're having a joint or if you're having like an edible or if you're having a concentrate, if you're using a bong, if you're using a rig, you they charge a different amount, but, and then they pay that, it goes back to the business. So they're making revenue from the customer coming in and paying, and they're also making revenue from the brand paying to have their product tested. So it's mm. a little bit of a loophole um, there in terms of a consumption lounge. There's also a couple outdoor ones, um, which technically aren't fully legal, but depending on the structure of your lease and if you own the building, you can sort of get away with it too. Ah, so there, yeah, that's, that side of the law is just, <laughs> that's wild right now. That's the, that's the wild west. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, what else is planned for Forte? Uh, where, where will you be traveling next or which conferences will you guys be popping up here in the near future? We're heading down to Miami for Benzinga next week um which our team is really excited for excited for we um it's, it's cold up here in canada so I, i'm excited to have a multiple reasons exactly exactly <laughs> yeah. um we were just at lucky leaf in missouri that was awesome it was great to um just i don't know meet people down there it was my first time there and those stores are, are extremely successful the first 200 stores i think that opened did about 100 million dollars in the first 30 days so Lots it's wild. Of, yeah, lots of lots of um, room for growth in, in that state. And um, kind of as we were talking about earlier, the lotteries due to open up this summer. So we should see another 
round of stores opening up, hopefully late summer, early fall. Yeah, I think that application window, that first one in Missouri is maybe the second week of June or so. I want, I don't know how long it takes to get through it, but um, it'll be interesting for sure. I think their, their micro business approach with that lottery is going to keep some mom and pop shops in the mix and actually regulate that they interact with other micro businesses. So it's harder than for a corporate MSO kind of business to come in and sort of be that big fish and just splash everybody out. I think there's going to be some growing pains with that. That's some restrictions to be limited to only smaller operations. But again, that only enforces the the need to to finesse and understand your business and your operating procedures. Certainly. <laughs> great, great, Brittany. Well, uh, where can folks find out more about Forte and and connect with you online? Um, you could visit us at www.forteops.com or me on LinkedIn. It's Brittany Melville, Brittany spelled B-R-Y-T-A-N-Y. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Apartment 113 podcast. For more information about the show and our range of services, visit apt113.com. We offer cannabis operations consulting, agile product management, and connoisseurship services. With over a decade of experience in the cannabis industry, Apartment 113 is here to help.